Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here today for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We are going to let our audience get settled in today. In just a few minutes, we will start the presentation. Thank you. We appreciate you all being here for our webcast today, sponsored by JJ Keller. We'll start the presentation in just a few minutes. We're going to let folks get settled in for just a moment. Thank you. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, the ins and outs of HASCOM training, what you need to know to stay in compliance, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor at Safety and Health. I'll be moderating today's event. Before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share with everyone. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we will conduct a Q&A with our speakers. If you have a question at any time during today's event, just click on the Q&A button, which is located at the bottom of your screen excuse me, located at the bottom of your screen. Type in your question and press the send button. After this presentation, you'll also be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let's introduce our presenters. With us today are Rachel Krubsack and Tricia Hodkovich. Rachel serves as an editor at JJ Keller and writes a monthly newsletter on employee safety training. She also manages publications on HASCOM compliance and OSHA rules for general industry. Tricia has been a JJ Keller editor since 1994 she provides content for manuals, handbooks, videos, training materials, and online solutions. She specializes in topics such as HASCOM, bloodborne pathogens, and signs and labels. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. And Rachel, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thanks, Barry. Today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller Training. J.J. Keller Training Solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, training on demand, DVD, streaming video, and video books to help you meet your needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. On behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. So today we'll look at the training requirements in OSHA's Hazard Communication or HASCOM standard. But first, we'll take a brief look at how many times OSHA has cited lack of training under HASCOM 
and what the risks of non-compliance are. Then we'll provide a broad overview of HASCOM, who is covered and what ex exceptions apply. And finally, we'll delve into what's required under the standard for training. Hazard communication is always found in OSHA's top 10 list of most frequently cited serious violations. These are the numbers from 2021, where three of the top 10 serious violations were related to HASCOM. And you can see that missing or inadequate measures to provide hazard information to employees or provide proper training was the second most commonly cited HASCOM violation with 515 citations. Recently, an employer in South Dakota faced penalties of over $120,000 after an employee was asphyxiated while handling liquid nitrogen. OSHA found several violations of the HASCOM standard, including lack of a written hazard communication program and chemical inventory, unlabeled containers of hazardous chemicals, no safety data sheets, and lack of training on chemicals, their hazards, and protective measures. So when it comes to training, what are the risks of non-compliance? No one wants to be out of compliance, but if you're ever tempted to cut costs by sidetracking training, consider the consequences. If you don't provide training, you're at risk for some large OSHA fines. Training violations are typically cited as serious violations, which carry a fine of $14,502 each. A serious violation is defined by OSHA as one in which there is substantial probability that death or serious physical harm could result and the employer knew or should have known of the hazard. Another risk of noncompliance is a workplace injury, illness, or fatality. When an employee isn't sure of what they're doing, they have an increased risk for injury or illness. Injuries and illnesses come with costs that are likely to be higher than OSHA fines. Some direct costs may include medical bills, repairs to any damaged equipment, product losses, and costs to hire and train replacement workers. You'll also want to consider potential indirect costs, such as decreased morale and productivity in coworkers, increases in your workers' compensation premiums, and lost business contracts due to having a higher experience modification rate. In addition, your reputation in the community and industry can take a hit if the injury, illness, or fatality is publicized. Tricia? Excellent. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Uh, and welcome, everyone, to our webcast. So, hazardous chemicals are needed to help manufacture many of the products we use on a daily basis. OSHA estimates that 43 million workers produce or handle hazardous chemicals in more than 5 million workplaces across the country. The potential for accidents, incidents, and injuries is always present when people work with or are in the vicinity of hazardous chemicals. But by knowing and understanding the basic nature of those chemicals and how to safely work with or around them, people, workers, <laughs> can greatly decrease any risk that might be present. To ensure chemical safety in the workplace, information about the identities and hazards of the chemicals must be available and understandable to your employees. OSHA's HASCOM standard requires you to communicate this information. In order to understand the HASCOM standard and the information and training requirements, you need to first understand what a hazardous chemical is. OSHA defines the term hazardous chemical as, quote, any chemical which is classified as a physical hazard or a health hazard, a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, 
pyrophoric gas or hazard not otherwise classified, end quote. The terms health hazard and physical hazard are defined at 1910.1200C. Uh, a health hazard or physical hazard is classified as posing one of the hazardous effects listed in their respective columns on this slide. Hazard refers to an inherent property of a substance that's capable of causing an adverse effect. Chemical exposure can cause or contribute to many serious adverse health effects, such as cancer, sterility, heart disease, lung damage, and burns. Some chemicals are also physical hazards and have the potential to cause fire, explosions, and other dangerous incidents. A hazardous chemical also may be classified as a simple asphyxiant, combustible dust, pyrophoric gas, or hazard not otherwise classified, HNOC, and these terms are defined in the standard at 1910.1200 paragraph C, uh, with the exception of combustible dust. That is defined by a directive, a compliance directive. Uh, it's CPL 03-00-008. And let me repeat that, CPL 03-00-008. Rachel. Okay, thank you. So with some exceptions, if your employees are exposed to hazardous chemicals, you're covered under HAZCOM. And this is the first of two slides that contain some exemptions. Let's take a closer look at some of these. Certain hazardous substances are regulated by other agencies. Therefore, OSHA has exempted them from coverage by HAZCOM. Articles are exempted by OSHA. The standard defines article as a manufactured item other than a fluid or particle, which is formed to a specific shape or design during manufacture, has end use functions dependent in whole or in part upon its shape or design during end use, and must not release more than very small quantities of a hazardous chemical or pose a physical hazard or health risk to employees under normal conditions of use. It may be difficult to define what's considered normal conditions of use. An employer may have a manufactured item that meets the definition of an article, but if it's burned, it produces a hazardous byproduct. The question then becomes, is burning normal use for the product? If burning occurs during its normal use and more than trace amounts of a hazardous byproduct are produced, then it cannot be exempted as an article. Normal use does not include incidental exposure. If a hazardous chemical can be expected to be released only when the item is repaired, that's not considered part of its normal condition of use. The item would be considered an article under HAZCOM and thus exempted. Stainless steel tables, vinyl upholstery, and tires are such examples of these articles. Basically, if the product will be processed in some way after leaving the manufacturing site, such as heated, welded, glued, or sawed, and a hazardous chemical could be emitted, it probably will not qualify for the article exemption. We often get questions about consumer products. HASCOM does not cover consumer products such as kitchen cleanser when the products are used in the workplace in such a way that the duration and frequency of use and therefore exposure is not greater than what the typical consumer would experience. However, this exemption is based on how it's actually used in the workplace rather than the chemical manufacturer's intended use of the product. For instance, if an employee uses kitchen cleanser to clean the sink in the break room twice a week, that would be considered normal consumer exposure. 
However, if that employee cleans all of the sinks in all of the building's break rooms every day, that would exceed normal consumer exposure and the provisions of HASCOM would apply. You also don't need to worry about HASCOM for items in first aid cabinets. Drugs intended for personal consumption by employees while in the workplace are exempted. If your operations and your chemicals are not entirely exempted and you're left with some covered hazardous chemicals that your employees are exposed to, you must provide training to them. This applies to general industry, shipyard, marine terminals, longshoring, and construction. The standard defines exposure or exposed to mean that an employee is subjected in the course of employment to a chemical that's a physical or health hazard and includes potential, such as accidental or possible, exposure. Subjected in terms of health hazards includes any route of entry, for example, inhalation, ingestion, skin contact, or absorption. OSHA defines an employee as any worker who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions or in foreseeable emergencies. Normal operating conditions are those which employees encounter in performing their job duties in their assigned work areas. So for example, if the receptionist in a facility receives and delivers a phone message for someone in a different work area where hazardous chemicals are present, this doesn't necessarily mean that the receptionist would be covered under the rule by virtue of that one potential exposure from delivering the message. However, if performance of the receptionist's job entails walking through the production area every day and thus being potentially exposed during the performance of regular duties, that job would be covered under the standard. Similarly, a housekeeping staff member who's expected to handle cleanup of hazardous substances, such as mercury from a broken thermometer, would require training. If you have some employees who are occasionally in an area where chemicals are stored or used and you're undecided whether they're exposed, include them in your training program. It's better to train too many employees than too few. Tricia? All right, so the responsibility for training temporary or uh, temporary employees is shared between the employment agency and the host employer in general. The staffing agency takes care of the general training requirements for HASCOM, uh, training employees on the types of chemicals they're likely to encounter, doing the type of work they're likely to be asked to do. Staffing agencies will also train them on general personal protective equipment or PPE, including how to don and doff, and also how to read safety data sheets and how to read labels. In a temporary worker initiative bulletin regarding temporary workers and HASCOM, OSHA has said, and I'm going to quote, the host employer holds the primary responsibility for providing site-specific hazard communication information and training on chemical hazards in the workplace to temporary employees since it uses or produces the hazardous chemical and creates and controls the work processes. Now, the host, employer is therefore best suited to inform employees of the chemical hazards specific to the workplace environment through site-specific training, end quote. Employees must be trained at the time of initial assignment, prior to initial exposure, and whenever a new chemical hazard is introduced. There is no annual training requirement. Training may be done either by individual chemical or by categories of hazards, such as flammability. If there are only a few chemicals in the workplace, then an employer may want to discuss each one individually. 
where there are large numbers of chemicals or the chemicals change frequently, you'll probably want to train generally based on the hazard categories, such as flammable liquids, corrosive materials, or carcinogens. Employees will have access to the substance-specific information on the labels and the SDSs in their work areas. The HAZCOM standard does not set requirements for specific refresher training. However, if employees are not putting into practice what was covered in training, it's time to revisit training to ensure their safety. If retraining needs do arise, it, it may not be necessary to repeat the entire HASCOM training program. Uh, for example, if employees can tell you where the HASCOM written program is located, there is no need to repeat the information. Likewise, if they uh, can satisfy their objective, your objectives, uh, that they know the methods and observations that may be used to detect the presence or release of a hazardous chemical, there is no need to go over that part of the training program again. As we mentioned, additional training is to be done whenever a new physical or health hazard is introduced into the work area, not necessarily a new chemical. For example, if a new solvent is brought into the workplace and it has hazards similar to existing chemicals for which training has already been conducted, then no new training is required. On the flip side, just as an example, if the newly introduced solvent is a, a suspect carcinogen and there has never been a carcinogenic hazard in the workplace before, then new training for those hazards must be conducted for employees in those work areas where employees will be exposed. It is not necessary that the employer retrain each new hire if that employee has received prior training by a past employer, an employee union, or any other entity, but you need to be able to show that this was done. General information such as the rudiments of the HASCOM standard could be expected to remain with the employee from one position to another. The employer, however, maintains the responsibility to ensure that their employees are adequately trained and equipped with the knowledge and information necessary to conduct their jobs safely. New employees will need site-specific training, though, so they know the specifics of your program, uh, such as where the SDSs are located and the hazards of new chemicals to which they will be exposed. HASCOM continues to be one of the most challenging areas for safety professionals. JJ Keller Training on Demand will help you meet mandatory HASCOM training requirements. But beyond HASCOM, JJ Keller Training delivers 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streamlining video training across multiple industries. If you would like more information on JJ Keller's training, Use the poll on your screen to select your areas of interest. And since JJ Keller Training is sponsoring today's event, anyone interested in learning more about our training solutions will also receive a complimentary HASCOM training white paper. So I, I want you, don't want you to miss that one. All right, thank you. Um, I think while folks take a look at the poll, uh, Rachel, um, let's take let's take a couple. Questions that have come in already. Rachel, do you have one? 
Sure. Um, we're wondering, someone is wondering, um, let's see, I'm going to say how many, if there's a minimum number of employees for the training requirement to kick in. And no, there's not a magic number. If you have one employee exposed to one hazardous chemical, you must provide training to that employee. Uh, yeah, great, great answer. Uh, Rachel, um, I have a similar question, actually. Um, interesting. Uh, they say that our office has only a small number of employees. Are small employers exempt from OSHA training rules? Okay, so this is kind of that small employer question. Uh, so for OSHA, there's no blanket exemption for offices or, or small businesses. Uh, when it comes to OSHA training, uh, yeah, your typical office may have training requirements under OSHA, and it, it will depend on which training requirements apply. Uh, offices are general industry establishments, so uh, they'll focus on 29 CFR 1904 and 1910, including our HASCOM standard today that we're discussing. Uh, as an office, though, uh, you know, you may not need all the types of OSHA training that, that is mandated. Um, just as an example, if you do not have forklifts uh, in your office, you, you, you would not need a forklift training. So, um, but again, for small businesses, there's no cutoff number of employees. Uh, I think Rachel even mentioned, if you have one employee and one hazardous chemical, HASCOM uh, will apply. Uh, if that employee has exposure or foreseeable uh, uh, potential exposure in a foreseeable emergency. Um, so it does not matter the number of employees. Uh, if an OSHA standard applies uh, and there's a training requirement, uh, you have to train your covered employees. Excellent, excellent question. All right, Rachel. All right, thank you. So with that, let's delve into what specific training and information are required under the standard. Employers must provide certain information to employees and train employees on specific topics. So first, let's take a look at the information requirements. The standard requires employees to be informed of the general requirements of the HASCOM standard, where hazardous chemicals are located in their work areas, so that's operations where exposure may occur, and the location and availability of the employer's written HASCOM program Chemical Inventory and Safety Data Sheets, or SDSs. In addition to providing this information to workers, they must be trained on the following. How to detect hazardous chemicals in the work area, and this could be such as through monitoring conducted by the employer, continuous monitoring devices, or visual appearance or odor of hazardous chemicals when being released. The physical health, simple asphyxiation, combustible dust, and pyrophoric gas hazards, as well as hazards not otherwise classified, of the chemicals in the work area. How employees can protect themselves from these hazards, including appropriate work practices, emergency procedures, and personal protective equipment to be used. And they also must be trained on the details of the written HASCOM program you've developed, including an explanation of labels and SDSs. So let's take a closer look at training as it relates to labels and SDSs. Your training must address the following. An explanation of the labels received on shipped containers, the in-house labeling system used by the employer if it's different from labels on shipped containers, the format of the SDS, which contains 16 standardized sections, and how the label information relates to SDS information. 
The label is an immediate type of warning since it's present in the work area right on the actual container of a hazardous chemical. It's a snapshot of the hazards and the protective information related to that chemical and a summary of the more detailed information that's available on the SDS. So while labels provide important information for anyone handles, uses, stores, and transports hazardous chemicals, they're limited by design in the amount of information they can provide. SDSs are the more complete resource for details regarding hazardous chemicals, and we'll talk about them later in the webcast. The labels you receive on shipped containers must include the information shown on the slide located together in the same field of view. Be sure to inform employees of what to do or who to contact if they come across an unlabeled container in the workplace. Tricia? Okay, thank you, Rachel. So let's take a closer look at the label elements. The product identifier is how the hazardous chemical is identified. Uh, this can be bought not as limited, uh, but, but not limited to the chemical name, the code number or batch number. The manufacturer, importer, or distributor uh, can decide the appropriate product identifier, and the same product identifier must be uh, both on the label and in section one of the SDS. The signal word is used to indicate the relative level of severity of hazard and alert workers to a potential hazard. The signal words used are danger and warning. Now danger is used for the more severe hazards while warning is used for less severe hazards. There will only be one signal word on the label no matter how many hazards a chemical may have. The hazard statement is a statement that describes the nature of the hazards of a chemical, including, where appropriate, the degree of hazard. The precautionary statement is a phrase that describes recommended measures to be taken to minimize or prevent adverse effects resulting from exposure or improper storage or handling of a hazardous chemical. And there are four types of precautionary statements, prevention, uh, response, storage, and disposal. Pictograms are graphic symbols used to convey specific information about the hazards of a chemical. Each pictogram consists of a different symbol on a white background within a red square frame set on point. Uh, in other words, a red diamond. The HASCOM standard requires pictograms on labels to alert users of the chemical hazards to which they may be exposed. Now the pictogram on the label is determined by the chemical hazard classification. Each pictogram has, um, hey, and, and Rachel, uh, let's forward the slide one and they can take a look at the uh, table here. Uh, you can see that each pictogram has a specific meaning conveying health and physical hazard information for chemicals, hazard class, and category. Now, while there are nine pictograms depicted on the slide, OSHA only enforces the use of eight of them. Since OSHA does not have the authority over environmental issues, the agency cannot require the use of the environmental pictogram, which is on the bottom there, bottom middle, uh, kind of this tree with a fish kind of icon there in the pictogram. All right, if you choose to use alternative in-house labels, such as HMIS or NFPA on containers of hazardous chemicals, 
you must ensure that your training program instructs employees on how to use and understand the alternative labeling systems so that you know, they're aware of the effects of the hazardous chemicals to which they are potentially exposed. Some options for in-house labeling include following the labeling requirements of shipped containers. In other words, that GHS style is um, one option for in-house labeling. And we discussed that on the previous slides, but for in-house purposes, you are, um, if you're using the GHS style, you are not required to include the name address and phone number of the responsible party on that in-house label. Alternatively though, the in-house label can be just the product identifier and some words, pictures, or symbols that convey general hazard information regarding the physical and health hazards of the hazardous chemical. As we mentioned, OSHA allows employers to use the HMIS-3 or NFPA systems for in-house labeling if they're used in accordance with the NFPA and HMIS guidelines, and as long as it does not cast doubt or contradict the validity of the label information. So all workplace HASCOMS labels must include the product identifier and that general information regarding all the hazards of the chemicals, even when using NFPA or HMIS. So I know in some cases, all the hazards are not addressed by a particular rating system. Uh, for example, chronic health hazards may not be in that rating system. So hazards that are not addressed by those rating systems must be communicated in other ways by words, pictures, symbols, or a combination thereof in addition to the NFPA or HMS rating system. Now, again, if you use an alternative labeling system, be sure your training program instructs employees on how to use and understand it uh, so that they're aware of the effects of the hazardous chemicals that, to which they're exposed. Rachel. Okay, thanks. So now let's take a look at what employees need to know about safety data sheets. The SDS contains all the elements you see on the slide. The important areas for employees to understand are the sections on what the health effects of exposure to the chemical could be. What should they watch out for? Should they suspect they've been exposed to a chemical if they have difficulty breathing or if they get a rash? Employees will learn from the STS if the chemical requires special precautions, such as not exposing it to water or heat, or whether it can handle rough treatment. Knowing the firefighting measures is important for knowing whether a standard portable fire extinguisher will work to put out a fire involving the chemical or if you need a certain type of extinguisher. One reason OSHA requires SDSs to be readily available and accessible to employees is so they can quickly find emergency and first aid procedures for exposures to the chemical. Do they need to get the employee medical attention as soon as possible? Do they have to flush the eyes or skin for a certain amount of time? Knowing the recommended spill containment methods can help employees avoid injury when there's been a spill or release. Can they simply soak up or sweep up a spill or do they need to apply a neutralizing agent first? Handling and storage are important to help employees know when they should avoid using the chemical with other chemicals. For instance, an SDS for a cleaner containing bleach will caution against combining the cleaner with ammonia. The SDS will contain information on when to wear PPE and what type of PPE is appropriate. The physical and chemical properties will tell you if the chemical is a liquid, gas, or solid what color it is, what it smells like, or if it's odorless, if it's 
um, flammable, etc. And this kind of thing is important to know to see if the chemical is also covered by other OSHA standards, such as the flammable liquid standard at 1910-106. Section 10 lists the stability and reactivity. For instance, what happens if you drop a box of the chemical or if it's exposed to water or air. Note that the information found in sections 12 through 15 can be very valuable, especially when it comes time to dispose of the hazardous chemical. But OSHA does not enforce these sections. Other agencies, such as the Department of Transportation, regulate the information required to be in these sections. These sections will also let you know if the chemical falls under the reporting requirements for EPA reporting programs, such as the Toxics Release Inventory. Employers must maintain an SDS for each hazardous chemical in the workplace. They may be kept in hard copy or electronic format. Employees must know the location of SDSs and they must be readily accessible. There must be no barrier to employee access, such as having to ask a supervisor for an SDS or keeping the SDSs in a locked cabinet. Employers aren't allowed to require employees to do an internet search for SDSs. However, they are allowed to be maintained on a company website or with an off-site or web-based web -based SDS provider. Employers must ensure that there's a backup procedure or system in place in case the system is not functioning and that employees are trained on how to access the SDSs both on the computer and the backup system. In the event of a medical emergency, hard copy SDSs must be immediately available to medical personnel. As we mentioned earlier, employees must be trained on the details of your written hazard communication program. So let's spend a little time going over what that means. Simply put, a written HAZCOM program is a record of how your organization will comply with the HAZCOM standard. All employers, including those on multi-employer work sites who may expose their employees or employees of other employers to hazardous chemicals must develop a written program. The written program requirement does not apply to laboratories or operations where employees handle only sealed containers of hazardous chemicals, such as in warehouses or retail sales. The program does not need to be lengthy or complicated. However, it should provide enough details about your training program to assess whether or not a good faith effort is being made to train workers on chemical hazards. You may maintain the program either on paper or in electronic format, as long as employees have access to it upon request. If your employee's job assignment requires travel between various geographical locations, you may keep the written program at the primary work location. And finally, the program must be available upon request to not just your employees, but also their designated representatives and any OSHA officials. Tricia? Thank you, Rachel. So the written program must describe how you'll meet the requirements for labels and other forms of warning, uh, safety data sheets, and employee information and training. It also must include a list of the hazardous chemicals known to be present in the workplace using the product identifier that is referenced on the appropriate safety data sheet. The program must describe methods the employer or you <laughs> will use to inform your employees of the hazards of non-routine tasks, uh, for example, cleaning of reactor vessels, and the hazards associated with chemicals contained in unlabeled pipes in your work areas. Uh, so, and finally, where there's more than one employer operating on a site and employees may be exposed to the chemicals used by each employer, 
the program must then describe the sharing of safety data sheets, any uh, sharing of the needed precautionary measures, and uh, sharing of the description of the on-site uh, labeling system. We often get questions on who is qualified to present HASCOM training or if a person needs to be certified to do that. OSHA does not specify you know, just who uh, you need to have present HASCOM training to your employees and it does not have any or require any formal certification to do that. As the employer, you make that call. You determine who's qualified to do training. However, OSHA does expect that the trainer has the knowledge uh, and understanding to present the information so that it is understandable to your employees and that it's specific to the workplace. The trainer must be familiar with the requirements of the standard, the HASCOM standard that, that apply to the workplace. Uh, the hazardous chemicals in the workplace to which workers are potentially exposed, as well as the types of hazards that those chemicals pose. It, that trainer must be familiar with the, the written HASCOM program that is implemented in the workplace and the protective measures that are employed in the workplace to prevent adverse effects from occurring. Training is required to be provided at no cost to workers and, and workers must be paid for the time they spend at training. The training provisions are not satisfied solely by giving your workers the safety data sheets uh, to read. Uh, rather, your training program is to be, well, a forum for explaining not only the hazards of the chemicals in the work area, but also how to use the information generated in the program the safety data sheets, the labels, and so on. And this can be accomplished in many ways. Uh, Audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online training are good examples. Although there will always have to be some site-specific training, any methods of presenting the material that meet the objectives can be used. However, OSHA explains that workers must also have the opportunity to ask questions and receive timely answers. And, and this basically helps ensure the information is understood and employees have a chance to ask about issues they do not understand. The training must be comprehensible. Keep in mind that the training must be conducted in a manner and language that employees can understand if they receive job instructions in a language other than English, then the training and information uh, to be conveyed under the standard will also need to be conducted in that same language. Always consider the education and technical background of the employees to ensure that they completely understand the information being given to them. Just as an example, if employees have low literacy, you may consider verbal instruction versus reading documents. OSHA requires that effective training must be provided. And, and this means that the training program must provide employees with the knowledge they need and that they can carry that knowledge into their daily jobs. OSHA inspectors often ask workers if they know the location of SDSs, if they can list the health effects of chemicals they work with, as well as what to do in an emergency. If your workers cannot respond properly to these questions, even if the workers had been through documented training, 
OSHA can cite you. While OSHA does not require that you evaluate your training program, you may consider doing so to ensure that it's effective for your employees. Consider, uh, and uh, let's, let's flip to the next slide here. Uh, consider gathering employee feedback on the training they receive. Uh, what formats work best and the value of what they learned. This evaluation could be in the form of a sheet to be filled out by employees after the training. Now, evaluation should also include observation of how the training has affected employee behavior. So if employees have better compliance with the use of protective measures, like they're wearing gloves when appropriate, uh, this could factor into your evaluation of the program. If employees are not interested in the training as it's conducted, or they don't appear motivated, uh, don't exhibit an increased knowledge of hazards and, and don't use the protective uh, measures, it may be necessary to review and revise the training to achieve a better outcome. Rachel. It's a highly encouraged practice to maintain training records, although HASCOM does not require it. This may help you monitor your own program to ensure that all workers are appropriately trained. Keeping records that document who was trained, when the training was conducted, and what was covered is also helpful to document compliance with OSHA's training requirement in case of an inspection. During an inspection, OSHA will talk to workers to determine if they received training and are knowledgeable regarding HAZCOM. They'll likely be asked what chemicals they have in their work area and if they know the hazards. They also will be asked if they know where to obtain substance-specific information on labels and SDSs. OSHA doesn't expect that workers will be able to recall and recite all data provided about each hazardous chemical in the workplace. But what's most important is that they understand that they're exposed to hazardous chemicals, know how to read labels and SDSs, and have a general understanding of what information is provided in these documents and how to access these tools. If the inspector detects a trend in employee responses that indicates training is not being conducted or is ineffective, OSHA can issue a citation. In addition to the federal HASCOM standard, many states and territories have been approved by OSHA to operate their own safety and health programs. These state plan states must have standards that are at least as effective as OSHA's rules, but they may have additional requirements that could involve hazard communication. Many of these states adopt federal OSHA rules as is, but this is not always the case. Beyond this, any state could have right to know laws and regulations that are more stringent. In any case, it's a good idea to check your state requirements in the following states, Alaska, California, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, Oregon, and Tennessee. Tricia? All right, finally, you may be aware that uh, OSHA issued a proposed HASCOM rule in February 2021. Now changes are proposed throughout the regulation and mainly impact chemical manufacturers, importers, and distributors. However, if the rule is finalized, uh, it looks like employers will need to maintain any new safety data sheets that come in and train employees about new hazard classifications related to aerosols, desensitized explosives, and flammable gases. Now, the hazards of these chemicals will not change, just their classification, and it 
will be required that employees understand these classifications before they may be exposed to these chemicals at work. Now, it, we saw the latest uh, semi-annual agenda from OSHA, and um, the agency hopes to finalize uh, this PASCOM rule, come out with a final rule in December of this year. So that's something to watch, something we are monitoring closely. Rachel. Okay, so today we looked at a broad overview of HASCOM and what OSHA requires for HASCOM training. While we've covered a lot of ground, we hope that you've taken away a better understanding of the requirements. Prior to training, you should read and understand the information and training requirements in the standard, determine which employees must be trained, ensure that the person who will do the training is competent and knowledgeable, decide if you'll train on each individual chemical or group the chemicals based on shared hazards, Make sure your training program addresses the hazards of chemicals in the workplace and the appropriate protective measures, as well as how to read and understand labels and SDSs, and how to locate the SDSs, chemical inventory, and the written program. Your training also should include instructions on what to do with an unlabeled container and what to do when no SDS can be found. And finally, employees must have the opportunity to ask questions during training. Chances are employee safety training is just one of your many varied responsibilities, but it's an important one for JJ Keller. Training can help make this critical yet time-consuming task simpler for you. With our flexible, convenient online courses and video training accessible 24 seven, you can train whenever it works best for you and your employees. If you missed the opportunity earlier in the event, or maybe you joined late, we are offering our attendees the chance to receive additional information on JJ Keller training solutions. If you'd like to learn more about how we can help your training program, please check off one of the boxes on your screen. We'll also send you a free copy of our white paper, The Ins and Outs of HASCOM Training. I think with that, we are ready to take some questions. Well, thank you very much, Rachel, and thank you, Tricia, for sharing your insights with us. Uh, folks, we've had some good questions rolling in already, but if you'd like to go ahead and ask a question, we have plenty of time for your questions today. Click on that Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type in your question, and press the send button. Also, before we start the Q&A, I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar, and your input is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. So let's get to some of those questions right now. Um, first of all, Tricia, uh, Linda wants to know if you could uh, repeat the CPL for combustible dust again, please. All right, great question. So let me uh, just pull it up once more uh, right here. Uh, CPL 03-00 dash 008. And that is called the Combustible Dust National Emphasis Program. Combustible Dust National Emphasis Program. It came out in 2008. Um, it was a hot topic back then. It's still a hot topic now, as many workplaces um, may um, have combustible dust 
hazards. And you can imagine when dust accumulates, um, it, it can be uh, a kind of an explosive hazard in the workplace. So take a look at that standard. They have a definition of the term combustible dust there. Many industries are covered by or fall under combustible dust um, scenarios. So take a look there, that CPL dash, I'm sorry, CPL 03-00-008. Thank you. Great. Thank you for that, Tricia. Um, Rachel, the next question for you, um, Saul would like to know, he just wants to confirm, uh, should temp workers be trained on HASCOM and PPE right away? Yes, they should be, as you know, before they use any hazardous chemicals, they should be trained in the same manner that you would train your regular employees. Okay, excellent. Um, Tricia Angel has a question for us. Um, he wants to know, is it acceptable to use a website, and he mentions the site msds.com, instead of having a hard copy of a safety data sheet? Okay, so... Uh, if you take a look at the regulation, um, 1910, 1200, paragraph G as in girl, number eight, there is um, an acceptance or, or allowance for electronic access um, or other alternatives um, to maintaining paper copies of your safety data sheets. So that is permitted. And then there's this uh, uh, contingent here as long as there are no barriers to immediate employee access in each workplace. Um, so take a look at G8 there. Um, but I would caution you um, to also take a look at another CPL that goes into greater detail about that uh, um, provision. And that is CPL 02 dash zero two dash zero seven nine. That's CPL zero two dash zero zero, I'm sorry, CPL zero two dash zero two dash zero seven nine. And the reason is um, it goes into great explanation of what OSHA uh, inspectors are looking for when an employer uses that approach um, to ensure that there are no barriers, and also to ensure that SCSs are available in an emergency. You can imagine if the power goes out and now your electronic access is not there, um, what do you do? I would, again, take a look at the CPL uh, 02-02-079. It goes into great explanation about that. Um, you may need to take have paper copy for emergency purposes, just so you know. Good question, okay. thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, Rachel, next question for you is from Martha. Um, and Martha asks, if your workplace has some basic products, for example, Clorox wipe or office supplies or hand sanitizer, does a workplace need SDS sheets for those items that anybody could, for example, pick up at a local store? Those typically would fall under the consumer exemption in the HASCOM standard and you would not need to have SDSs for those. Okay, great. And uh, Tricia, next question for you from Brianna. Um, can the written HASCOM plan be merged with the written chemical hygiene plan? Okay, so um, OSHA does not expect you to duplicate your efforts and, and, and would allow you to sort of merge the plan. If that makes sense to you and your, um, uh, your workplace, 
um, the flow of the two plans sort of could be mushed together into one, that is okay. Um, the only caution I, I would throw out there is um, when an inspector um, comes to your uh, workplace and wants to see your HASCOM program, you can imagine it may be difficult for him or her to, to fish out that plan out of this merged plan, if you will. So it's probably a good idea to um, provide a kind of a cross-reference page or something to show where the HASCOM elements are versus the chemical hygiene elements. And, and the chemical hygiene plan, by the way, is for, for everyone is kind of this laboratory plan. Um, it's uh, required at 1910.1450. Uh, it's a whole different plan. It's, it's great if they're separate, but if you feel you need to merge, merge the plan, it's okay. Um, but make sure you cover all the elements for each plan in this big plan. And, and it's a good idea to have some kind of cross-reference. Okay, great. Thank you for that explanation. Um, Rachel, next question for you is from Matthew. Uh, and the question is, if we train all employees on physical and health hazards, do we still need to train on a new chemical, even if that new chemical does not have any new hazards? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, certainly, if there's no new hazards for that new chemical, you would not need to train on that. It's certainly, employees would need to be aware of it, but there wouldn't be any new training to address if it doesn't have different hazards than the other chemicals that they're working with. Okay, excellent. Um, Tricia, the next question for you is from Julie, and I know we mentioned some state plan states, and her question is regarding Cal-OSHA, um, and wondering if you can explain any differences in federal standards versus California standards. Okay, so with Cal-OSHA, <clears throat> the fortunate, oh, by the way, the California regulation for HASCOM is section 5194 or 5194. Um, and when you take a look at that, bring it up, um, it looks an awful lot like the OSHA, the federal OSHA has come regulation. And that's because the standard, uh, while there are some differences or some additions, um, for the most part, it is identical. Uh, in wording. Um, so that's the good news. Um, I am not aware of the exact differences. Um, um, I'm sure uh, our team um, can fish that out. Um, but uh, from for right now, off the top of my head, I do not have those differences. But uh, bear in mind that um, state plan states, they need to be uh, equivalent to federal OSHA, or they can be more stringent. So the bare bones, what we talked about today for OSHA HASCOM uh, will be the case in California, but California may have a little more stringent uh, provisions or, or some additions there. But in this case, California is mostly identical um, for that. And that again is 5194 for California. Great, thank you very much for that. Uh, Rachel, next question for you is from Matthew. Um, who would like to know, do employees need to undergo job-specific HASCOM training, or can HASCOM be covered universally via an online training uh, type of course? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, there will always need to be some site-specific training, because that will be the 
chemicals that your employees will be working with during the course of their duties. So they'll need to be trained specifically on that and maybe perhaps what PPE they will need to use for those chemicals. But the online courses that can cover the general basics of the HASCOM standard that they would need to know. Okay, great, thank you very much. Uh, Tricia, next question for you is from Carl who has an interesting question about secondary containers. Um, and he'd like to know for secondary containers, are precautionary statements required? Um, he says those labels can get pretty small. Right, so with secondary containers, so when an employee um, uh, you know, pours chemical from a large container to a small container, there is a provision in the regulation and, and um, uh, Rachel might be able to help me there. Um, here we go. Um, not, okay. Yeah. All right. So the employer is not required to label portable containers into which hazardous chemicals are transferred from labeled containers and which are intended only for the immediate use of the employee who performs the transfer. Um, and so, so it, if that is the case, and, and, and OSHA does define the phrase immediate use in the regulation, take a look at that, make sure you're meeting that, right, uh, that, that definition in 1910.1200 paragraph C for the term immediate use. If that is the case, those portable containers do not require a label because that employee saw the initial label on the original drum or container. However, if you don't meet that scenario of immediate use, so let's say the container will be used in more than one shift or by other employees, um, then you're not going to fall under that immediate use scenario and you will need to label that secondary container, that portable container, if you will. Now, the question is, uh, you know, is that precautionary statement required on that uh, that label. And if you take a look at 1910 to 1200 paragraph F number six, that is your in-house uh, uh, workplace container provisions. They get, OSHA gives you two options. One, you can label it like the GHS style without that responsible party contact information. So you have uh, like five elements that you need to put on that label, including that precautionary statement, sorry. Um, or you have another alternative that, or, or option, that alternative label that we talked about today, which is include the product identifier. So it's like the chemical name or number or whatever it is that matches the SDS product identifier and some general hazard information. And you can imagine that's not precautionary statement. That, that, that is just the product identifier and the general hazard information. So you have two ways to, to um, label your portable containers or secondary containers, if you will. Um, so take a look at um, number F, or letter F, number six of 1910.1200. Great, thank you, Tricia. Appreciate that explanation. Uh, looks like we have time for one more question today. 
And uh, Rachel, Gary would like to share just an example for you, and maybe you can uh, follow up on his comment here. And Gary says, a basic products such as glass cleaner would require SDSs when used in greater quantity or frequency than household use. And the example he shares is glass cleaner used in a jewelry store, for example, uh, would be used more often than cleaning in your home and would be greater than household use. Yes, that's correct. You may have some, even though that would be a consumer product, if you are using it, as you said, in a greater quantity or frequency than you would at home, you would need an SDS for that. So you may have some consumer products in your workplace that you do need an SDS for and some that you don't, depending on the how frequently they're used. And OSHA says that the employer is in the best um, position to make that determination. Right. Uh, I would add to that, uh, Rachel. Um, mm -hmm. Exactly. You are correct. Uh, there is that consumer exemption stated in the regulations. But if if the employer, if the employee is is uh, using that chemical in a frequency or duration that's greater than the ordinary consumer would, um, then um, you know, then it would fall under the HASCOM regulations, no exemption there. Um, just as an example, uh, let's say you're using dish soap and you, you know, you do dishes, a few dishes, you know, once a day, that's kind of like a consumer would, right? Um, but if you're washing dishes all day, <laughs> you know, or for hours and hours, that's a little more than an ordinary consumer. That's a duration um, uh, that's a little more. So kind of think, weigh, see if what scenario, uh, how your, your employees are using that chemical uh, before jumping to that conclusion that, oh, it's a consumer product. Take a look at the frequency and the duration. Great. Thank you both for sharing those. Uh, folks, unfortunately, we've run out of time today. We thank you for attending today's presentation. And any, if we didn't get to your question, all the unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers today. We'd also appreciate you taking the time to share your feedback via our survey. A special thank you goes out to our awesome presenters today, Rachel Krubsack and Trisha Hodkovich, and the entire team from our sponsor at JJ Keller. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone and have a safe day.